a cricketing view an irregular podcast about cricket and other things episode 3 my guests today are freddy wild and tim wigmore authors of the new book cricket 2.0 in this conversation we survey what they learned writing the book the past present and potential futures of t20 cricket welcome freddy welcome tim hi thanks uh, for having thank us much for having uh, yeah having us on the pod excited to have a chat I read the book over the weekend. I enjoyed it very much. I, I wanted to talk to you about T20 because even though it has grown so much, there haven't really been that many book-length treatments of this new sport. You guys have broken some ground in this book, and I thought it would be nice to to have a conversation about, you know, what you guys found and what you guys learned and your experience of working on the book. Sure, that'd be great. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the reasons we wrote the book was because we often found ourselves looking for a book about the topics we were interested in, and, and we realised that there wasn't a book out there, so we thought we'd, we'd write one ourselves. Yeah, I yeah. suppose the, the, the best reason to write a book, isn't it, is to uh, to write the book you, you wanted to read, and that was very much our experience in in doing this. And it, yeah, I mean, we, we first actually got seriously talking about this early in 2017, so actually you know, two and a half, almost three three years ago now. Um, so, yeah, it was a slightly winding road to get uh, from there to here. But it's been rewarding and we've kind of learned a lot along the way. And actually feels even the time we've been doing the book, the need for it's become a lot more pressing. So I suppose 2017, we, yeah, T20 still wasn't been taken that seriously. Although I think the World, the World Cup 2016 was the first time it, it began to be kind of looked at from a kind of tactical strategic lens in quite a common way but even within the process of writing this book there's been a big evolution in terms of you know the stuff that we we talk about um some of that is is sort of seeping into the popular discourse on on t20 you know at least at least to a degree um so we we hope that uh it kind of reflects that and also you know encourages people to to look a bit more more deeply as as well and also to to sort of see that this format that it it still can be very easy and very lazy to just deride as a, a slogathon to just see it's got you know see the nuance and what's really going on there because it is mm. it's a you know ultimately it's for all the Rasmus has it's a very serious professional sport with a lot of money in it and really really strong incentives to win and people who are giving a lot of thought to how how to win and how to get an edge and that's what we've we sort of tried to explore in the book the competitiveness of the 20 over game has sort of taken over how T20 is discussed. You know, it has become about the competitiveness of the contest rather than the the stardom of the participant. This shift began sometime in that period, you know, after 2012. Because in your book also, you have this fun section where you point out that at one point, Saurav Ganguly could no longer get a contract in an auction. Nobody wanted him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, 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 that moment we sort of I mean, there, there are probably a number of moments um, in the history of T20 or in the history of the IPL when um, you could probably pinpoint and say, you know, it begun to become more serious so at auctions in particular, certain players going unsold or or certain matches. Even you might be able to pinpoint and say, wow, you know, this is a suddenly a very serious contest and the one that we chose it wasn't sort of necessarily the pivot point but we, we looked at the at the auction when Ganguly went unsold at KKR um, and 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 how you know at, when the IPL began as you said it was very much about celebrity um, and it's sort of the, the the early auctions had had a sort of feeling of uh, you know uh, 
basically rich rich people picking their favourite cricketers rather than uh, teams trying to assemble a set of players to win the tournament. And and Ganguly going unsold when he did uh, marked a shift, I think, um, in the way that uh, teams approach the auction. And KKR were at the, at the vanguard of that change. I mean, Rajasthan Royals were the first team to win the tournament and they adopted a sort of Moneyball-style approach to the auction. But KKR... Uh, sort of doubled down on that and, and formed probably, well, along with Chennai, one of the first dynasties of the IPL. Um, and, and yeah, we, we tell the story of that in, in one of the chapters. Um, Venki Mysore is a, a businessman uh, who was from America who, who came over and basically took charge of, of KKR and by uh, applying rigorous analytics to, to, to the team building and to the auction, uh, KKR started to f- become a very successful team after you know struggling in the early years, and and you're right that sort of that change happened in that you know around 2010 to 11, 12. That sort of period is when the the IPL begun to shift, and I think nowadays uh, the large majority of teams in in the tournament uh, are, are run in a very professional manner, or certainly far more professionally than they were in 2008. And and just with with the Ganguly, you know when he's when he's, he's not picked up, you know, there's a lot of articles. People really think that Kolkata fans will, will stop going because they've, they've they, you know, he's their, yeah. their sort of local prince. And they think that this guy, even though he's not actually very good at the sport anymore, certainly at this specific sport, uh, rather than cricket more, more broadly, you know, he's such a big draw that it doesn't really matter how he plays, but he will put bums on seats and so on. And in the end, basically, Kolkata, they make a gamble that what matters, their bet is what matters more than Rasmataz is actually winning. And so um, the season after Ganguly goes, the first time they get, to, they get to the playoff for the first time. And they also become the first IPL team to record a profit. And then they sort of learn through that example that winning, yeah, it's a winning that can actually make a franchise more profitable, more than just getting stars for the sake of it. And I'm, I'm not saying that journey is, is complete because Clearly, if you get Chris Gale, that does open up a certain, that opens up certain extra value in terms of advertising and marketing and and so on and sort of sponsors you'll get involved. But that it, it's a pretty decisive point in the IPL going on that journey. And I don't think that journey is complete yet, but it's mm. it's advanced a heck of a, a long way since 2008 and even really since you know early early 2010s. Mm. It's it's interesting that you bring up uh, Rajasthan Royals. I remember I interviewed uh, Zubin Bharucha, who used to yeah. work for them, uh, about, I don't, I think it was like six, seven years ago. Uh, and we exchanged emails. And uh, one of the things he insisted, and he, he was very, he was very, very insistent on, was that the Rajasthan Royals coaching at the time was concerned with, in his words, producing cricketers for India. And he was sort of very, uh, he was very, very clear that this was about uh, this was a new venue to produce cricketers, to produce, to train young players. Basically, pursuing this this line of you know this question about identity, about how it goes from celebrity to competitiveness, does that shift in competitiveness also sort of entail a much more focused preparation for T20? Rather than you know broadly trying to produce improve broadly trying to improve players, I, I think so. I, th- I mean I think this is a shift which is still occurring uh, more so than the sort of shift to, to it being taken seriously. 
Um, I think, you know, for example, let's say you've got someone like Raul Dravid, who has actually worked at Rajasthan. Um, he's yeah. now working with young players in India. If he was working at an IPL team, uh, there would be, I, th- I think, there would be, part, part, you know, when he's training a young batsman, let's say Sandrew Sampson, during the IPL season, I'm sure they would also discuss other formats of cricket and how you might improve as a test player and a one-day player because someone like Raul Dravid is invested in, in the Indian game as a whole. Um, and that's completely understandable and that's never going to completely go away, I don't think. But I think as the game becomes more and more serious and is taken more and more seriously and winning, uh, as Tim says, is, is becomes more related to, to profit and, and the general success of the franchise, then I think that the, the sort of focus on multi-format skills will diminish over time. I don't think it'll ever go completely, but, you know, I'll... Ultimately, the coach will be employed by, by Rajasthan Royals or whoever, whichever team we're, we're talking about. And his job will be to make sure that team wins you know, IPL matches, not necessarily produce players for India or, or whoever, or, or improve the, the, you know, the, the Red Bull skills of the players that he's working with. And I think that as that becomes more, more and more over time, then we'll see a sort of a, a specialization of talent and a specialization of coaching that is focused more and more on T20 rather than on, as I said, multi-format skills. And actually on that, you know, one of, I think, our favourite interviews in the book was we talked w- with Raul Dravid and that was so, so interesting to get an insight from obviously a legend of the test game into T20. And he, he's such a deep thinker about t- t20 one of the things we talked to him about was was fielding actually and there was this idea when t20 comes along that fielding kind of this kind of undervalued thing it will become more and more important and of course sun's got a lot better but but he sort of explains why actually maybe fielding sometimes can be over- overvalued as opposed to undervalued uh simply because fielding to, to focus on fielding is to focus on marginal gains. But of course, if you can just hit hit more balls out the ground, who needs the marginal gains? Um, and, you know, as he said, I don't care how good a fielder he is, he's not going to save 18 runs in a T- T20 game. So if you pick the slightly, a bowler who's a better fielder and a less good bowler, well, they could, they could you know, save you a few runs and cost you far, far, far more. But just, just the fact that he's thought about that quite almost quite a marginal thing and such a, a deep level is is actually emblematic of the level of thought that's going on in T20. And I think where T20 has differed from other sports, actually, is that the sort of level of conversation happening within teams has been far more advanced than that happening, you know, uh, in the media and, and so on. So there's a bit of a, a disconnect in terms of how fans view what's happening and what's really going on. And again, in the, in the book, through talking to, to all these people, we're hoping to, to bridge that gap a little bit and, and help illuminate readers into how this game is really, really played now, because often we still see it through quite a superficial lens, I think. Well, one of the, one of the things uh, you notice also is that there's a lot of second-tier T20 emerging uh, in recent times, like you know the Karnataka Premier League and the and the Tamil Nadu Premier League, and then outside of the major, you know, like you have the Pakistan Super League, but you also have domestic T20 in both Pakistan and India, and you have, of course, you know now England has had a massive T20 tournament since 2003. There have been 16 of those right now, right? 16 or 17. Yeah. 17, yeah. There seems to be a critical mass developing whereby the sport can stand on its own. Is that something that administrators are pursuing or is that is that sort of being driven by the market? I think it's 
being driven by by both. Um, like T20 is the most popular format of cricket, which is why all these leagues are popping up. Um, but so far, the story has probably been more of stumbling kind of from one league to the next and a kind of a lack of overarching plan. And one of the things that we go into actually is the idea that lots of leagues are losing money. And the reason they are is because everyone looks at the IPL and is so jealous and wants to create their own mini IPL. And by doing that, they massively overestimate the uh, desire in India to watch foreign cricket, basically, you know, to watch leagues which, which really don't have any Indian players because of the BCI's ban on Indian players going overseas. And that's why we've seen some leagues like the Global League in South Africa, um, the Euroslam was cancelled, the Euroslam has been postponed and who knows if it'll come back. There's been some issues in Canada as well with players being paid late. Um, and so, yeah, this odd thing where everyone is possibly being a little bit too ambitious there's certainly, yeah, my argument is that there's certainly scope for a lot of T20 leagues to be viable, but I don't think there's necessarily scope for them to be viable in their current guise. And you have, you know, you have, a, sometimes you have an arms race in terms of how much they're uh, spending on overseas players and stuff. And, and that hasn't really added up. And actually, even the last few months, we've seen some pretty major leagues like Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Australia's big bash as well. They're all reducing the amount that they're spending on on salaries because, although those leagues are very popular, they haven't been able to make the sums quite add up as say the IPL has. No, the reason I asked about second tier leagues is that you know there's this big story, uh, Freddie, about uh, Jasprit Bumrah, you know, and how he mm -hmm. was spotted by Mr. Wright when he was uh, employed by the Indians. I mean, the Mumbai yeah. Indians. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's always struck me about that story was that, yeah, well, he spotted him playing in a local tournament. And then, fine, he spots him. He says, okay, here's a potential player. And so, I mean, the, the Gujarat Association has also probably spotted him. And what happens then is that all the sort of, all the preparatory cricket, all the second lower level cricket that Jaspreet Bumrah actually ends up playing is age group cricket organized by the the Gujarat board and then yeah. the Indian board. The the IPL team seem to sort of do a lot of scouting, but they don't seem to have any place where they can do anything about that scouting. You know, for, for, for any sort of actual development, they're completely dependent on the BCCI's, you know, admittedly vast system. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that, that, that's true. I th but I think it will, I, I, I would say, I would guess that over time, uh, we will see teams sort of that the tentacles of these teams will stretch deeper into the system itself. And I, and I would like to think and hope, and I think it would benefit teams if they did this, if they were to, uh, you know, if, if the Mumbai Indians, to take your example, was to, you know, to sort of to, to work with the state association and to, to, to you know, to do their own talent scouting and sort of funding, I suppose, of of that level of cricket below the IPL. Because I think what you're sort of getting at a little bit is that, or I think, is that the IPL teams almost can reap the rewards of work done elsewhere, um, and, and are dependent still upon the, as you said, the BCCI system and the and the the, the work that the state associations have done. But I think that if I was running an IPL team or a team in any league. I think it would make sense for you to try and uh, embed yourself more deeply in the local game. I think we're seeing it a little bit more in the PSL as well, actually. Um, I think I know that Lahore, Kalandas and Pashawa Zalmi do a lot of, um, they organise a lot of tournaments themselves. 
at a local level. So they're essentially getting in at that grassroots level, which you're sort of referring to, um, and, and, and actually organise tournaments. And then they've got scouts at those tournaments and talent hunt programmes. And I think last year, Lahore signed a guy that they, that they picked up from, uh, from one of the tournaments that they'd arranged. And I think over time, uh, we'll see that happen more and more. It happened, I think the Big Bash teams do it too. Um, you know, because ultimately, as Tim referred to with KKR, we're yeah. finding that teams that win on the pitch generally win off it. And I think that that simply means that, you know, it, 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 teams will con- continue to be run more professionally and more rigorously. And that will involve, I hope, a sort of uh, them winding themselves into the, the state system and the infrastructure of the game at a lower level. I mean, and, right now... And, sorry, if I could just... Yeah, to me, the yeah. really exciting thing is if you... You think of the IPL as a domestic league, but also a global league, which it clearly is. So it's, it's sort of the NBA of cricket, I always call it. Um, and if you look at what the NBA has done on a talent level in recent years, so it's, it's they've built academies in Australia, China, India, Mexico and Senegal, which are funded centrally by the league themselves. And yeah. this would be an amazing, really interesting step. And the, it would make sense, actually, for the IPL um, if yeah. they were to, to put academies in, say, Nepal, in in USA, in in Canada, um, in in African country, and so on, and so the IPL becomes sort of the the way in which talent is developed around the world. Um, that that is certainly one possibility, and and sort of linked to that, similar to what US sports have, they have basically farm leagues. So they they have a so each each team, each franchise, major, major franchise will have a lot of players, far more than they can ever fit into their main squad, and they will put them into different tiers. And the really interesting thing, actually, would be, let's say the IPL league, like the Euroslam, which is obviously going to be, we talked about tiers of league, that will be probably a third tier league, realistically. Imagine if the IPL were, were, to, were to buy that league and to say, we're going to sort of take over the running of this, um, and as part of this, we're going to put, say, three Indian under-23 players, so the sort of squad peripheral players from the IPL teams, we're going to put three Indian under-23 players in each in each franchise. Well, that would be an incredible step. It would be actually good for the development of cricket around the world. It would be good for the IPL's imprint, and it would also be a good way of developing those young cricketers. And I think sometimes that's an IPL problem, that you have these 25-man squads and often you don't have a huge amount of, of game time and then suddenly you have the next season. I think one of the steps, again, is which we begin to see with teams like KKR is these guys, are they're big assets and winning is worth a lot, but not enough is done in the nine and a half months between each IPL season. So again, some of those, those steps as a way of sort of centrally controlling them uh, the players to a degree what happens in between RPLs that would be a really interesting step and it would it would probably benefit the franchises and, and the players alike I mean I think the question of control is is an interesting one because I mean it's not that the IPL does not contribute right the IPL is ultimately the IPL belongs to the BCCI and every year some of the money is is paid up to the BCCI and the BCCI uses that some of that money to to pay for all the age group and everything like that. So the IPL does contribute to it. And then I think the question of control comes in because, I mean, one of the risks of IPL franchises building this sort of almost rival infrastructure to the BCCI is, you know, it will sort of change the balance of power between the BCCI and the IPL potentially. I mean, 
that that's sort of one of the things that they will have to work through i suppose in the in the in this in this decade do you think there's any chance of you know this growth abating anytime soon i mean the the expansion in 2023 is almost a foregone conclusion right it's going to happen yeah, we, yeah. we talk oh, about that yeah so, so yeah we talk about that in in the book we sort of get i think the the inside story on how the ipl is likely to expand so that's like to be we did it from eight teams to ten, um, and an increase from a minimum of ten days to potentially two or three, three, three weeks. Um, so that will put further stresses on the calendar. Um, at the moment, there's no evidence that you know interest in the IPL is waning. It's it's quite the opposite. And of mm-hmm. course, as the Indian economy continues to grow, that will mean the IPL can become a lot, a lot more, more, more lucrative. Because uh, the amount of money uh, in broadcasting, advertising, and so on will increase, and that's another thing that separates the direction of. It's not so. It's not only starting from a a much bigger place than say even the Big Bash, but also its trajectory is different um, in terms of the sources of revenue growth are a lot more more obvious. Um, so it would be yeah, it would be a surprise the IPL does not expand not just in teams and games but in days as well. I mean, you you were saying that uh, you know other leagues have been trying to mimic the IPL to, to to sort of use the IPL model to for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, has is has is there any sort of attempt to produce some alternative type of model for well, a I, for a? I, th- I think that the, the CPL is is probably quite an interesting case study in this because I think a couple of seasons ago. Um, this, the, you know, the, the market in the Caribbean is not particularly large, uh, and, and I think that what the Caribbean Premier League did a few years ago was they essentially moved their games earlier in the day because they wanted to try and suit an Indian TV market, and they found that by doing so, firstly there wasn't there still wasn't that much interest in India um, in the CPL itself because ultimately these weren't teams that they could relate to particularly. Um, and then also what happened was that the people in the Caribbean stopped going because it was in the middle of the day and it didn't it didn't suit their, you know, what their working hours. And so the CPL then adjusted and moved back to, to playing matches in the evening and essentially trying to nurture a local fan base and I think tap into the American uh, interest in cricket. And there's a, you know, a very large expat population in America. And I think that there was a sort of a, a realization that what they could do was 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 build a market around the Caribbean and the USA rather than trying to pander, I suppose, to the Indian market. And I think we've seen now, particularly in Guyana and Trinidad, um, amazing, amazing fan bases have been built up, you know, really loyal followers of the game. If you if you if you watch a match being played at either of those two home stadiums, the, the crowd and the atmosphere is remarkable. And I think you've seen there that essentially the the benefits of a league focusing on the local market and trying to nurture nurture fans in the stadium and I think that creates ultimately a better a better feel around the tournament and of course you, you know ultimately you still need the, the the TV revenue and the interest in the the TV broadcast is what's going to really drive the league because that's where the money is but the product for TV looks significantly better when you have full stadiums and excellent atmospheres and I think the CPL um, is, a, is a really good example of how a league by focusing on its on its local market can can grow, and the CPL is never going to make huge money, I wouldn't imagine. But it it, it it's staying. It's you know it, it it's a successful league. It's managing to sign uh, you know high profile overseas players, and it appears to be sustainable at least in the short term. Yeah, well, the CPL they lost money for I think 
it took them until the sixth year to go into the black for the first time this season. But they now seem to have sit, have have found a, a model that works for them. And again, what they've identified absolutely absolutely crucial. Every year, you get a couple of new guys who emerge as local stars. So this year, uh, we've seen uh, Brandon King and Hayden Walsh Jr. Uh, they've basically, base, they've both basically gone from nowhere to being in the West Indies squad thanks to playing brilliant, brilliantly in the CPL. And these new stars are such an important part of the CPL. And one, one clever thing they did recognizing that was for this season they moved the overseas players allowed in the eleven from five down to four because they basically said rather than having a kind of say a Kiwi or someone who's a solid cricketer but not actually an A-lister, otherwise he'd have been he'd have been picked earlier. We would rather that slot was taken by, you know, a young kid from Bagana or Trinidad because actually for our audience, their story is, is more captivating. And I think that's that's the right approach for that league. And they've they've got through some difficulties and, and they've kind of stumbled across uh, across a formula that it's yeah, it's sensible and it it work it works for for that market. Do you foresee an uh, uh, American CPL franchises in the future? Well, so that their their long ambition has been to have an eight team CPL with a team in Toronto and a team in probably either New York or or Florida. Um, oh. That that's been their sort of long term ambition. But there's there's a lot of difficulties getting cricket off the ground in. In the US, it also adds adds quite a lot in the way of of costs of you know, transport and so on, obviously, which is which is a real thing for these leagues. I know we don't really think about that, and that's but the costs of of it all um, are a bit are a big 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 thing. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think that the odds are that that will happen at, at some point, but it might it might be alternatively that you take a smaller franchise and you you relocate them to the US or they 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 split. You know, there's different options. I think I do think the lesson from so many leagues: you expand too fast, too too quickly. Yeah, I was about I was about to say exactly. You're in back. I was about to say exactly that. I mean, I think the IPL is, is is a good example of that. Obviously, it did expand and then it moved back. And I remember after uh, Chennai and Rajasthan. Uh, were banned and then returned. I remember talking to a number of people and, th- and saying, like, surely this is the perfect time for for the IPL to expand because they've introduced two new teams, which are Gujarat and and Pune. And if they could have added Chennai and Rajasthan to it, then they would have been a sort of natural growth towards ten teams. But even then, the BCCI essentially said, no, you know what, we're going to wait. I don't think anyone really seriously thinks the IPL isn't going to expand, but it didn't happen then. Um, and, and they basically said, look, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep our powder dry on this expansion. We're going to make sure we've really got this strong foundation of these eight teams, which will have been around for, you know, 10, 10 plus years. And then we'll make we'll make the move into an expansion. And if the IPL does that, I think that's a lesson to leagues around the world. And I think we saw last year it wasn't catastrophic, but the Big Bash tried to expand and it probably yeah. didn't quite get it right. And it's now having to adjust this year. We'll have to see what happens. But expansion is not as as easy as I think, you know, it, it's made out to be, you know, it's not like, okay, so this league's really popular. We can make it bigger. We can grow that. I think you need to, you know, it, it needs to happen over a longer period of time so that, you know, the teams that do exist are very much established before that expansion happens. The PSL still has six teams that's been really popular and has been really successful. I don't think that they should expand anytime soon either. They should continue to nurture those six teams they've got. And in terms of the viability of these leagues and where you can make some serious money, one of the possibilities is you go from having national leagues to regional leagues. So if you had, mm. you know, say, the PSL were, were to merge with the Bangladesh Premier League, you could then have eight or ten teams or even two divisions, who knows, 
and yeah. sort of really high standard and and proven fan bases and proven teams. You know, the IPL has, has no need to do that. But for other leagues, that's an interesting model. Um, and it, it does create difficulties as well in terms of transport and, and are people going to see the value of local rivalries being diluted if, if you're seeing teams from different countries and so on. Um, but that, I think, for for those sort of tier two leagues, that's something to, to consider. And the other thing as well, it, the CPL, they've had a lot of talks with other countries, countries like Singapore, Hong Kong and so on about, you know, playing a couple of, a, a few games there. And that's another interesting model. And I suppose mm-hmm. maybe the elephant in the room is the Champions League, which, you know, actually in our book, we talk about the incredible importance of the Champions League in the story of Trinidad and Tobago and therefore in the West Indies and how they build the first first dynasty really international t20 cricket um but obviously that stopped running in 2014 basically because mumbai didn't get in and yeah the indian fans had a lack of appetite to watch otago vaults and and that (laughs) created that yeah and that created problems but on yeah it as t20 goes to the next level and obviously there's a the real problem about you know players playing for multiple teams but i think there is a lot to be said for champions league and a lot of the owners we talked to, including from the IPL, were, were keen on the Champions League returning. Um, we felt, you know, it needed some tweaks from how from its previous iterations. But that and that would be an interesting model because actually we see Ghana now. I know they didn't, ironically, they didn't, they didn't win the CPL, but as they're winning those eleven games in a row, I remember uh, talking to Freddie, one of our kind of nerdy conversations, and we we had a kind of interesting hypothetical chat about where they'd come in the IPL and whether the best domestic team in the world be on IPL teams. And that's, that's interesting, you know, as, as it becomes more of a serious sport, people want to know the answers to, the, to those questions. So right. the Champions League would, would, would help a lot. I've noticed one model, the, which the Australians have tried it, which is to sort of try and, you know, have the WBBL and the BBL close together. You know, often, you know, they would have the women's game and then followed by the men's game on, on the same day. They say that this is sort of to, to give a boost to the women's game, which is a separate sport in its own right and has its own standing and its own identity. But is there also a reverse effect that it's possibly aimed at bringing new audiences and additional audiences to the, to the men's game, especially given how, how much emphasis there has been... Uh, from Australian administrators on, you know, saying, oh, well, it's a family sport. We want it to be a family sport for family audiences and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, there is something to be said for that. And the Big Bash has done that quite well. I mean, the Big Bash used to uh, run the women's and men's tournaments concurrently. Uh, they now don't do that. The, 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 the Women's Big Bash, well, this year certainly is going to happen. I think there's a little bit of an overlap, but essentially the, the Women's Big Bash will be played largely before the Men's Big Bash. But if you were to go onto the website of, let's say, the Melbourne Renegades and just click on players, they will just show you the men's and the women's players in one page. You can obviously then right. filter it and just look at the men's or just look at the women's. Um, but but there's a there's a there's a concerted effort there to present them as one thing, and I think yeah. you're seeing now in, with the hundred in the, in over here in the UK, which is obviously being launched at the moment, and this you know start first season will be next year. We're seeing the same thing again. We had the um, icon players they're called unveiled last week, uh, and and the men and women essentially were announced together and presented together and you'll see now on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook it's it's very much about both the men's and the women's team rather than one and the tournaments may may well run separately or matches might not necessarily be one after the other but I think presenting them as one thing it, it has a has definite value um, and, and certainly in, in, in attracting more women to follow the game. As T20 sort of acquires its own 
competitive identity and also its own, it already has its own corporate identity right but from a competitive standpoint it is a very short contest so the effect of sort of individual flukes is proportionately larger compared to say a 100 over game or or a 4 day game or whatever right so is there a case for turning it into a high volume contest along yeah. the lines of major league baseball yeah uh, absolutely i i wrote an article a couple of years ago um i think for crick buzz where i i discussed this and i think there's a formula um, by uh, a guy who works in baseball, um, essentially looking at trying to work out how much luck influences games in different yeah. sports. And, and I think, the, I can't remember the exact number, but the, but the conclusion of the analysis that I did uh, on T20 was that you'd need to play, I, th- I think off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly, I have to dig the article out, was about 70 matches uh, per, <laughs> per league stage yeah. would, be, would be required for you to yeah. be confident in the fact that the points table would reflect the quality of the teams. Now, 70 is a huge, huge increase on what we currently well, they would have. have to play but, every day, right? But, yeah, sure. But, but you look at other leagues, you know, American sports, um, I think you, you might know better than me that, that I think that's something, you know, is it baseball has 150 plus games? Yeah, 162. Um, 162, yeah. And so, NBA you know, has 82 games. Yeah, so th- th- that that kind of volume of of, of matches is is not uh, is not uh, completely alien to to domestic sports. Uh, you know, I think in cricket because we're used to these T Twenty leagues being pop up leagues that exist for six to eight weeks, sometimes only even four weeks. Uh, you know, we imagine teams playing eight games, ten games, fourteen games, sixteen seems like a lot when we had that in the IPL, but actually it's not. Um, and as you said, you rightly pointed out, you know, there is a huge amount of luck involved in a T20 contest as you shorten the game. That 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 naturally happens. Um, and if you are, t- I, th- I think it would, um, from a sort of uh, sporting perspective, uh, you could be far more, you would be far more confident that good teams uh, were winning if you played, you know, if the, if the league stage was longer. I think um, recently in the IPL, well, this the last couple of IPL seasons, in fact, have been very, very tight. And the difference between the team finishing fourth and the team finishing seventh has been sometimes a win or maybe even just net run rate. And I think it's quite, I think this is a really important discussion, actually, and something I'm quite passionate about because essentially as the sport tries to evolve uh, from a sporting perspective, um, who wins is, is really important. So teams that are successful will drive evolution forward um, in terms of how the game is approached, how it's played, the tactics and strategies that shape the game. And at the moment in T20, I think there's a, in, in a way it's being slightly held back because, uh, because of the luck involved and because of the fact that leagues aren't particularly long. Sometimes we'll find that teams who don't deserve to win, um, in, in inverted commas, uh, end up winning. And I think you know the CPL this year was a really good example. Guyana won 11 games in a row, one of the great streaks in T20 cricket, and they didn't end up lifting the trophy. And I think people will recognise that they were a very good side. But let's say yeah. next year they don't reach the playoffs. Johan Bota, the head coach, might well, let's just say, he, you know, he, loses, his job. Man, he loses his job. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, and he and he has there, you know, in, in this season uh, alone, and I think in the last few seasons as well, they've they've often been runners up in the CPL. He, he's creating quite clearly a successful model for a successful team. Um, right. And ultimately, it would be better for the game if teams like Guyana ended up lifting the trophy. You're always going to have, um, you know, the chance, especially in finals of, of uh, you know, one-off games of, of teams of, of really successful teams or very good teams not winning but you know that's that's the debate as well to have about how how uh, finals should be structured and in the right. CPL the, the so whether home... there should be finals 
Well, <laughs> well for certain, yeah. I, I mean, I think that realistically, in the modern in in the modern yeah, world, given the way them. things are structured, you're going to have to have them. But I think you can put in uh, you can put things in place to ensure that the best team is at an advantage. One thing that they don't do in the CPL, which I think they should do, um, is have home advantage. So if you finish first, you should play your ma- you know the finals matches should be played at your venue. And for Guyana, that would have been really significant because they've built their success around being good at home. Um, you could maybe even play a final series of, of three matches potentially. So there are lots of things you can do, but I think that is a you know, the, inf- the the role of luck in T20 is something that we don't talk about enough, and I think we yeah. should talk about more for that reason. You know, it seems to me that th- there's a there's a convergence from the competitive standpoint. You know, you need to play more games to have a better quality competition. Right, as in a competition which will actually produce a reliable winner, so to speak. Mm-hmm. From a television standpoint, you know, if if they can show Virat Kohli 40 times a year or 50 times a year, <laughs> that would be, you know, better than showing him 14 times. What I'm wondering is, sort of, what are the directions in which this new identity, which has begun to be established in the last four or five years, is most likely to take shape? within the next decade, which was when I think sort of things will sort of begin to get settled a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, I, mean, I, I think that I, I think it will probably, you say it will get settled. I don't think it will get settled in within the next 10 years. I think the IPL will, well, I th- we talk about this in the book, the IPL is, is, is almost certain to grow um, to 10 teams. And as Tim said, it will become a slightly longer league. And then I think, as far, I mean, again, this is a little bit of crystal, looking into the crystal ball and have, having a guess. But the way that I see it going is I think that in 10 years time, we'll have a discussion about the IPL becoming 12 teams. And then maybe five years after that, we might have a conversation about an IPL Division 2. And, and I, I, I think or, you know, there might be a point, in fact, when, when it becomes you know, things start to move quicker than that. Um, but but, but I, for me, I only see one direction of growth, which is T20 cricket and the IPL. And that might be other divisions of the the IPL, but essentially city-based domestic cricket with private ownership of those teams becoming more and more significant in India. And most probably that leads towards uh, a, a bit more of an Americanization of, of cricket. Um, this is my, I don't know necessarily if Tim would agree with me here, but this is my, my way of I, I see it going. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and in, in years to come, we might be talking 25 years about, um, you know, a six month long Indian T20 season and, and there might be two or three divisions um, in, in that season um, and, and how the rest of the world adapts to that uh, will remain to be seen and I definitely am not as confident predicting that side of things. Well it, it might be that we, we get like almost like we have with, with basketball so we have the NBA uh, we have the, the IPL like the NBA is, is the pinnacle at the top and then the big bash and even the, the hundred and all the other leagues are basically low, like they're lower divisions of the IPL. So it might be that that's where you you send your you know your your fringe players to play, and if they're if they're good, they get promoted from you know from the Brisbane Night Riders as they'll be by by then to Kolkata Night Riders. Like that's all it's all possible. Um, it, it, it is interesting. I mean, there's there's so many 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 possibilities, and actually the IPL has probably been more cautious. You know, if you more cautious than many many would have expected so so yeah. far, but I don't think that's going to last. Uh, Tim, I mean, it's interesting. Sorry, just to jump in very briefly with the, the, your reference there to the Brisbane Night Riders. One mm. other potential uh, development, and this would be slightly. I mean, it could also happen at the same time as uh, the situation I was just talking about with the six-month T20 calendar in, in India. But you could also see. 
uh, more uh, teams like uh, the K- like KKR have got TKR. They could also uh, invest in a team in Australia and in England. And this is where um, the Champions League idea might be able to come back. Um, and I would love this to happen personally. Uh, I think it would be really cool and it, it could work if we had uh, essentially, you know, that there might be eight, nine, ten teams around the world, not just the Knight Riders, but you'd have, you know, the London Super Kings or whatever it might be. And those teams who are, the, who are sort of centrally owned, if you like, share players. Um, there's a core set of players who play for TKR and KKR and whoever it may be. Um, and then you could have teams competing with one another because those players are sort of are, are linked purely to that one uh, umbrella team, if you like. And you could see mm. something happen there. But the reason I would say that that's unlikely is that the, the, simply the strength of the Indian market and the Indian game mm. is so much that I just don't see other leagues being able to compete. As we said, I think that you know we sit, we've seen um, the, the Knight Riders invest in, in, in the Trimbago team and that is working to a degree. But I think ultimately they would, uh, you know, I haven't got access to their balance sheets, but I would say that their, their best bet of making more money is, is with KKR and is with the IPL. So I see that the IPL simply being more dominant in, 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 in that regard. Yeah, as I say, and then you use your other team. You can make a loss on your other teams, but that is your development. That is your player development. So it doesn't right. matter if you're losing money owning Brisbane Knight Riders or KKR, because that is what that's a cost that you are playing to develop your players and improve and be more likely to win the one that really really matters, which is the IPL. That's sort of almost like the Manchester City model, right? Where it is. Know, yeah, have- yeah. We talked about that. I actually visited uh, the club in Melbourne. Um, uh-huh. I was in Australia a couple of years ago, and I, in the end of the book, we do talk about the comparison between Kolkata Night Riders and Man City, and it's yeah. there are some big comparisons in terms of the sharing of information, and this is becoming. You talked earlier about the number of games of T20, so there was 720 last year. So you need it's not yet a football level, but you need it absolute. You need a proper proper staff to analyze that, to sift through that all, to look yeah. at trends, to identify players and stuff. And that's where knowledge sharing and having an umbrella of teams it really makes a, a great deal of sense. And yeah. and actually, if you if you look at Kolkata, I know I said it's Kolkata and I rose that, that make that make the money, but since they've taken over uh, ownership of Trinidad, Trinidad of uh, Trinbago, they've been extremely extremely su- su- successful. So that model has worked on both a commercial level and a sporting level for them. I, I'm actually a little bit surprised that we haven't seen other teams pursue, pursuing that, that model because it does seem an obvious one mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that sort of... It, it seems to me that, you know, T20 has to grow in order to survive. Uh, and, you know, these are all sort of what you're describing are all potential directions. You know, you know there are at least some hints about in, in the current situation about you know, where teams and franchises are considering expansion and in what ways. Speaking of which, I'm very glad you brought up the 100. What is this beast? I mean, it seems to be a much derided, uh, you know, in, in many ways, kind of an inexplicable beast. I mean, what are they trying to achieve? I, I, I think it's very explicable. I think, I, think I, <laughs> I, personally, I personally think... Uh, in England, we've had uh, the debate about uh, how England should run its T20 tournament uh, or its flagship short form tournament, maybe I should call it, um, has has raged for a long time. We've obviously had 18 counties, and once the IPL, and that you know, that was the original T20 tournament in 2003, the IPL then came along with its eight team tournament. Uh, and as we've talked about, the most important thing with the IPL was the fact that one game was on per day and mm-hmm. or two at the weekend. And essentially, t- every game was televised and that essentially transformed the model for, for T20 leagues. And, and the difficulty in England, whereas in Australia and the Caribbean and Pakistan uh, and, and South Africa to a lesser extent and New Zealand, 
they were able to establish similar copycat leagues whereby there were enough teams or few enough teams rather for you to televise one game a day. The trouble being in England, there were too many teams, there were 18 teams and actually creating a tournament that had, uh, as I said, you know, eight, eight to ten teams, enough teams to have a game every day was very difficult and the counties held the votes. Um, mm. And so we've always had a tension in England about how we're going to, to create this, you know, the, the modern style T20 tournament. And I think um, personally, my interpretation of how it's come about is I think that the ECB thought, well, if the, if the counties aren't going to vote for a T20 competition, how about we try a hundred ball one, you know, ah. it's different, essentially. And the counties then have said, well, OK, so hang on, we can still keep our T20 tournament and you can... And and you're you know a change was coming and change was change was inevitable and I think that what the ECB have done by creating this tournament is is basically managed to to wriggle away from from yeah. the 18 county system and they've created this this new format and I think there are there are genuine benefits I think to to the hundred ball game I think that there is a sort of simplicity that we'll see I think when when the hundred ball format starts with very much a sort of hundred ball counter going down on one side and the runs going up on the other and then mm. in the second innings you'll have the opposite where the runs are being chased and the hundred balls will go down, and that's quite a sort of, you know, it is essentially a rebranding um, of, yeah. of a game, which isn't, isn't, it's not that different, and it won't be that different. But I think f- for me, I, I see it as a bit of a political play, um, yeah. and I think that's why we, we, we've got it. Uh, I don't think it will be that radically different to T20 as a game. It will obviously yeah. have differences, um, but that's for me, that's the explanation that I see as to why this has happened as it has. Oh, I, I think that's a very good explanation. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it does make a lot of sense, you know. In the but in a sense, I mean, the counties have gotten played in exchange yeah. for some money, basically. Which I mean, the ECB is probably committing to share some of the money with the with the with the with the counties, yeah, right? Yeah, they are. They they will. And and, and I mean, I think um, you know, the, you say played, and I think in in a way you, you could look at it like that. But I think almost they had no choice. You know, the, the direct yeah. the way the game has been going. Uh, the counties have been resisting change for so long. It's you know it's been a real sticking point in, in in the English game for a long time now. And I think that essentially they thought right, this is this is we're you know we're gonna have to go with this as an option, which means we might be able to keep our tournament alive. And I think you know we we, we you know I, I think the T20 blast. People are thinking the T20 blast is going to suffer massively. It, it probably will to a degree because the, the, the existing C20 tournament is going to be played earlier in the year. Um, but players will see that as a feeder to the 100. And we see this with yeah. um, T20 tournaments in India. They've got the side Mushtaq right. Ali, which is obviously the state tournament and then feeds through to the IPL. Yeah, um, that's an it, enormous it, tournament. Yeah, a huge tournament. And people's interest in the side Mushtaq Ali tournament has grown because they're now aware that players who do well in that um, will do well in the IPL. And I don't, I don't know, I, I, I doubt that the, that tournament is sort of commercially viable in, in, in of itself. Um, yeah. But 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 there is you know it fits into a broader system and I and I see the blast doing that as well over here in England. From what you guys are saying, it seems to me that the major insight about T20, which the IPL has produced, is that you have to offer the public a little bit less than what they might expect. Is that is that a fair sort of reading? I, I think you, you need to make a narrative that's easy to, to easy to understand, and ah. you, you can't have a narrative if. If you start and there's there's so 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 many teams. I mean, people talk about the Premier League with with 20 teams in football. Well, you know, in most countries, cricket is not as popular as football, and and it's difficult introducing a new competition having loads of teams, loads of loads of players at once. Um, so I think I think the secret is yeah, element of you concentrate the talent, you concentrate the stories, and then you have that sort of pub talk. I think 
the the problem with the two twenty blast in England has been is that even amongst cricket fans, everyone is everyone's experience with the T Twenty Blast is so so different. So if I'm you know I'm a you know I, my local team is Surrey, but if I'm you know if my friend's local team is is Somerset, you know even though we're in the same kind of pool, north and south, yeah. you know yeah. we'll we'll actually rarely we'll rarely watch, watch games at the same time and so on. We'll we'll rarely. You know, we, we won't even know. And I think the danger of the T20 Blast, yeah, it's hard to know. Yeah, each year, there's, we talk about breakout stars in the CPL and the IPL. Well, there's breakout stars every year in the T20 Blast. And they, but they can be a bit hard to, to uncover and to kind of convey because there's so many games. And it's and that narrative gets gets diluted, gets confusing. Um, you know, personally, I think I would like, in terms of raising the standard and so on, you know, I would really like, and maybe the IPL will be the one that, does it because it's got the size to you know you introduce what's worked so well for the Premier League, which is relegation and, pro- and promotion and relegation. So if you had two leagues of you know eight or something, um, mm-hmm. you know with with one team going down and maybe you have in in the Division One you have only you're allowed to say two overseas players or whatever. That would be that would be a brutal you know that would be brutal and we'd have we'd have the drum at the bottom end as well as the top end. So that's mm-hmm. that's one possibility. But I guess. You know, if leagues are very short, with only, with you know eight teams going to four to the playoffs, generally most teams are in it for most of the tournament. I always think about baseball when I think about how cricket is growing and developing. You know, and 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 baseball basically came about in the era before television and in actually even before radio. And teams used to basically, you know, they had to play more games if they had to make more money because the audience was limited to whoever could be fit into the ground, could be persuaded to buy a ticket. And so I think that was sort of probably one of the reasons why it became such a high volume sport. You know, I think coincidentally, it also worked out in a competitive sense. But cricket, uh, T20 especially, is, is definitely a television sport, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's played in prime time. It's, it's organized for television yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the product of its generation, um, as yeah. you said, with regards to baseball, um, it, it, it's evolved differently. And that's why it will be really interesting to see how the IPL does go about its expansion. And one, one thing that's also a sort of the, the, on the flip side, I suppose, football over here in the UK or soccer um, is similar to baseball in that it's, it started very much as a spectator sport and it's grown. And what we're seeing now, actually, in the Premier League is there are more matches played on, we, ha- we now have Friday night football. Uh, yeah. We never really had that. Um, so nights. now we have Monday night football too. Uh, and matches are played in- increasingly. Matches are not played concurrently. There's, you know, some, I think yeah. sometimes on a Saturday, I think sometimes you can have as four as four Premier League matches at the same time. Sometimes maybe even three. Whereas you, know, you used to have an entire programme of games. And that's simply because there's pressure from... You know, t- we now have two TV companies in, in the UK who bid for football rights, BT and Sky. Uh, yeah. there, there are pressure from, from, from the TV broadcasters to have more games just so they can show more games on TV. And as a result, that, that's almost going the inverse of... Yeah. of um, uh, how we're imagining IPL expansion going? We're saying, oh, games might be played more concurrently. Actually, I think, as I said earlier, I think the IPL will look to try and avoid that because ultimately, Star and the, the guys who own the rights to the TV, um, to the, broad, the broadcasting rights to the IPL, are the guys who call the shots. They're the most powerful yeah. people in cricket, and yeah. and they will not, we, they won't want matches to be played simultaneously because it means that they can't, they can't televise them both on on one of their channels. But people can't watch them both at the same time. Tim, you were saying something. Uh, no, I, I think yeah, I, I agree with that. It's interesting that the Premier League actually 
a new broadcasting deal for the first time, over half of all matches will be televised. So that traditional model, you know, it starts out you only have one or two games every week televised. Now you have five every every weekend, sometimes six televised. Mm. Um, yeah, so it is. It's yeah, leagues now they make their money from broadcasting. They don't really make they make a very small proportion from in house. You know, people actually coming to coming to the games. Um, I think yeah, that, that will remain true for, for the IPL as as well. Mm. Um, yeah, and there's different ways it, it could go. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, we talked about it before. I guess it's just you have those extra games; they bring value. But if you you're playing it at yeah three or four p.m. on a Wednesday, does that not not give off the look you, you want to as well? So it's 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 that it's that balance. But yeah, I mean, the direction of travel there will be growth. It's a question of of actually whether the rest of of the cricket can kind of can deal with it and can can accommodate it. Um, from the IPL's point of view, that that's not really their problem. How does international T20 fit into all this? I mean, because it is that thing. International T20 sort of operates on pretty much exactly the same model as international Test cricket and international in international ODIs, right? You know, it it's part of a tour. It's and, and then there's the ICC World Tournament. You know, there isn't even that many triangular internationals or anything like that, the way they used to be one-day triangulars and quadrilaterals. What is the status of that? What is the future of that, do you think? I, I, I think it's... I think how uh, international T20s are played outside of ICC events remains to be seen. Uh, but I think one thing we can be sure of is that the T20 World Cup will grow yeah. uh, in terms of the number of teams that play in it. I think we're already seeing that um, begin to happen. It's sort of a half-botched format. But I see more teams playing at T20 international level and I see the T20 World Cup itself becoming a bigger and bigger thing. I wouldn't be surprised if within the next 10 to 15 years the T20 World Cup is a larger and bigger event um, sort of in terms of its reputation mm. than the 50 over World Cup, which is, I think, considered uh, is still considered the sort of the event or the yeah. ICC event. But I think that, that will change very quickly. I think, in fact, the next after so we've got the World Cup in Australia next year, I think the one after that is meant to be in India. I can see mm. that being a huge event. Um, and I think that, that that is fairly certain, that the World Cup itself will become bigger and, and, and gain a greater reputation and sort of legitimacy, I suppose. But how, mm. it, how it fits into, the, how international cricket fits in among these different leagues is going to be difficult. And I think a, a, a lot of, or how that happens will, will depend on uh, what, what we were referring to before about the IPL itself and how the other T20 leagues sort of work out um, and, and how they grow. Yeah, we, we talk about this in the book. So we interviewed Tom Harrison, who's the CEO mm -hmm. of the ECB. And he's, he talks about this anomaly at the moment. You have context in ODI cricket with the ODI league. You have context in bilateral test cricket with the World Test Championship. And you have nothing in the most popular format of the game, T20. And he, yeah, he says this is a priority to introduce something. So you either do that by doing a kind of more all-encompassing structure of qualifying for the World Cup, sort of every team having to, having to enter potentially, um, which would be one very interesting model. The other one I think could work very well is in football, they've introduced the Nations League recently, which basically mm -hmm. has has kind of groups of four, promotion and relegation, very short, sharp. And the beauty of, of T20 is you could, you, can, you could do that event in a week. So you could have four teams, they come to India or they come to England, they play each plays each other twice. So that's six mm. six matches each, maybe in in ten days realistically. And then yeah. the the top top team say goes to like the, 
the grand final at the end of the year, every two years, whatever the cycle is, and the bottom team is relegated to the pool below, and then they can they have the opportunity to to rise and fall again. That that something like that would work really well because there is sometimes it's a, sometimes a slightly hollow feeling going to international two twenty. You know, this, this should be a really really big deal, and you go there, you see quite a lot of guys rested, and it's a bit you know players are out of sync, and it's a bit weird. And that that lag between the World Cup, which we saw the last one in in India two twenty World Cup had so much riding on it and it, it, the quality of cricket was absolutely fantastic and then mm. normal internationals often so half-hearted in comparison with that i think that that will be something that the administrators yeah they need to to, to address that um because if they don't actually we're going to see an acceleration of what we're already this big trend we're already seeing in cricket which is the rise of club cricket and the comparative decrease in international cricket so one of these incredible uh, stats we, we found is that before the IPL, uh, the commercial value of domestic cricket in India was only literally about one or two percent of the total value of broadcasting rights for yeah. match, for cricket matches in India. This is just in India, not ICC events. Now it's seventy one percent thanks mm. to the IPL, and that gives a, that gives an extent of the, the shift we've seen, and also probably the journey that we're st- we're still on. What makes a good T20 player? Do you want to take this, Tim? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think the, the first, the first and most important thing is to think of T20 as a separate sport, to not think mm-hmm. of it as a shorter ODI or let alone a shorter Test match, but to yeah. think of it as specific. And yeah, it's about yeah doing specific roles and and doing the better than anyone else. Um, and so. Andre Russell, I think we could all agree, is probably the MVP of T20. You know, what's so good about him? I suppose his hitting ability is unrivaled and incredible. He's yeah. um, he's versatile in when he can come out, but he, he tends to play in a fairly, fairly similar way. But he's also got a, a kind of a smartness to it about when he decides to attack. You know, mm. I mean, it goes back to he can incredible at clearing the ropes he's also a phenomenal fielder and he's a very useful bat uh, bowler and he's also he's a, a bowler who can bowl in all three phases which is, is very 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 valuable um so you you add up together and he is it's a prototype of a t- t- t20 cricketer and, and i suppose yeah his stardom has overwhelmingly come through his brilliance in in leagues rather than in, in, in international cricket um and to go back to your earlier question you know what what makes a t20 st- yeah i think uh, as good as he is and as kind of well regarded as, as he is, I think in the years to come, some him or someone like him will get a little bit more kind of sporting respect than he does at the moment. I mean, he still, he still gets a lot, but, uh, you know, maybe the time will come when we recognise him and he's embraced as a giant in the same way that, say, Kane Williamson is in a, in a very mm. different way and not so much in T20. But we, we will come to respect, and I think we should respect, the skills of Andre Russell as yeah. being equal to of, of a Kane Williamson. They're, they're very different, incredible in very different ways. But I don't think one is inferior to the other. Freddie, is there is there a realisation in the people you guys uh, speak to about the idea that power is basically the holy grail in, in the T20 game, especially on the batting side? Power is central to, to T20 batting, but I don't think it's the only thing. I think there is still space in the game for a little, uh, probably one player per team, I think. I think of him as I, I increasingly work now alongside teams. And Tim earlier was saying how, you know, there are sort of two conversations going on, one in the media and one one in teams. And working in teams is sort of uh, has, has shone light on this for, for me. I think 
uh, and the way that I think of it is I think there is a there is probably always going to be a space for a kind of like firewall uh, batsman who, who who probably will increasingly float down up and down the order. Uh, and if you are 20 for three, then then you might send that player in and he probably is in the mold of of a Virat Kohli or a Kane Williamson. Mm-hmm. But uh, apart from him, there will be there is an emphasis on power, the ability to clear the ropes, uh, particularly hit sixes rather than hit fours. Um, and, and, and score boundaries rather than run uh, it is the most essential thing you've written in depth mm. about this and, and you're completely right you know the, the, the currency of the game it runs and, and the way that the runs are scored means that you know taking risks to try and hit boundaries is, is worthwhile uh, and you, you've written as well about how teams aren't often bowled out and that batsmen should generally be more risky or more aggressive in their approach and I think that's going to lead to yeah, power will continue to be prioritised. And I think also what we've seen in the first generation of T20 is the players have been trying to bridge formats. So mm. uh, guys have been trying to adapt games for test match cricket and then play T20 cricket. But as we see players specialise more, I think we'll just simply see an acceleration of the skills which we already see to be valuable. So power, the ability to score 360 degrees, um, those two things, I think, are central to T20 batting. And I think in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to only see that the, the emphasis placed on them increase. And in terms of what, what makes a good play, and one of the things we talked with, with Brennan McCullum, and he said it's so, so difficult for players, you know, brilliant, brilliant batsmen, to just basically to retrain everything they've ever known about cricket and to learn to value their wicket less highly. Mm-hmm. That is that was such a difficult thing to do and it's proved so difficult for so many brilliant brilliant players mm. but now we are seeing a generation who who maybe they grew up and they actually wanted to be a t20 cricketer as much as anything else so they, they didn't think of t20 as a format you pay along with the others you know you, you get kids now who grew up and their aim is to be the best t20 cricketer that they can be and they might still want to play the other formats but if their primary aim is that t20 cricket and to be as good as they possibly can that it means that their whole mindset and their whole way of being will, will be around that. And actually, this this interest, this links to analytics and data because historically, a problem of the way that teams have recruited players is they've simply looked too much at the top top by numbers, which is how many runs does someone score. So someone mm-hmm. playing in a very selfless way, you know, who is going to fail more naturally as part of that. You know that they would be insecure about playing in that way because they could be dropped or they could not get gigs in other leagues. But as teams are learning to use the data in a better way, in a more rigorous way, well, interesting things. It's encouraging them to be more attacking because they are learning. There is no point in doing what Ajunka Rahane and I have nothing against him did against yeah. West Indies in that semi-final in 2016 when he, you know, he gets 40 or 35 balls, they get to 190 for two and they're, they're actually beaten very easily because yeah. they, they haven't scored enough runs. We're going to, that sort of innings, it's got, it, it will become less, less common because teams will realise the value in, in going earlier. And, and that, a lot of it comes from something very innate in the batsman's mindset. And that's why it, it might be a, it's a younger generation can can reach new heights and maybe it's revealing that we talk of Andre Russell because although he's yeah. he's a different generation to the young players now he has been someone for T20 has always really been been the pinnacle for him sorry although although he 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 when he was growing up so how old is Russell he's probably mid to late 20s actually in fact he might I think he might be approaching 30 now um he 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 when he grew up T20 was only just starting there will be guys who are 
growing up now in the Caribbean where T20 is, is a massive thing. And they're going to be, you know, it's a frightening thought, but they're going to be even more emphasis. There's going to be even more emphasis for them on power. Like it's going to be, you talk about, uh, the, you know, the approach of batsmen being sort of like hardwired into their brain to value their wicket. When Russell grew mm-hmm. up, I'm sure he played cricket and he valued his wicket. But they, yeah. there will be kids now who are growing up and they don't or they won't or not to certainly the same degree that the that, that guys who play first class cricket or are bred on, on longer forms of cricket do. And and that's an amazing thought, really, that we're, we're only scratching the surface, I think, from a psychological standpoint. I think the game yeah. has changed massively technically, massively. And I don't think there'll be many more advancements in the way that the, you know, the shots are, um, that are played from a technical standpoint, because I think we've sort of basically done all that they can do in many ways but I think the mind is the thing that will continue to change and continue to uh, uh, sort of reap massive changes in the way that batting is approached over the coming years. Players have tried to sort of make that shift in setup and approach you know KL Rahul comes to mind and it has messed up his long form game quite a bit mm-hmm. you know he, I mean he's a very different long form player in the last say 12 months compared to what he was when he started you know four years yeah. ago. And, and players have really struggled to adapt. And most players who are continue to remain successful in the long-form game have just not made a, a big enough shift. I mean, with the exception of maybe A.B. de Villiers, who's something of a freak of nature, I can't think of a second batsman who's successfully able to hit in T20 and bat in Test cricket. David Warner is perhaps the only other player I can yeah. think of who's, who's maybe done it. But he's not a hitter. You're right. Yeah. You know, Warner anchors the innings in a way. Um, and he doesn't hit in the way that Russell and de Villiers do. Uh, you're right. I think that, you know, the, the fact is the game, the games are diverging. Um, the skills are becoming more and more different. I mean, David uh, and as a result, seems to be more of a 18-15 man rather than, say, yeah. a 14-15 man. Yeah. Completely, yeah. There's a slight, yeah. You're right. There's a slight difference there, and I don't think, yeah, De Villiers is the only one. I think you know, De Villiers is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of you know the most talented players, I, well, certainly that I've ever watched, and I think he's one of the greatest players ever to play the game, simply because of his ability to to transfer those skills across formats uh, so effectively. And I think you know we'll we'll see greater specialization, uh, particularly in batting, but I think also in bowling because the games just aren't the same. You know, Test cricket and T20 cricket. Are, are and we talk about this in the book and you've written it as well many times there they should be considered as different sports so you know tim uh, anil kumble developed a googly uh, around the turn of the century and then you know he broke his arm but he later used it and used it well in australia and uh, he was asked about it and he said well you know I know the batsmen read the googly, but they still have to play it. The premise in test cricket is that there are no secrets, there are no mysteries. There's so much time that the mysteries get found out. And one of the things that struck me in your book, the key to being a a great spinner in T20 is the ability to get keep the batsmen guessing about what's happening off the pitch. I've been trying to make sense of how to think about bowling in T20. And that was, it seems to me, uh, quite an insight. Can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? It was Carl Crow, who oh. is Carl Crow is a specialist spin coach. And again, we talked about oh. something we'll see more of. We'll see we'll be more specialization of players and certainly much more of coaches as well. So Carl Crow, who's he's basically the mental and coach for Sunil Narayan and has done yeah. a huge amount of work with him. Um, yeah. yeah, he he says you know it's all about you you cannot set you cannot allow batsmen to set themselves up 
So it is about being that step ahead of the of the batsman. So you know that that goes back a bit to that famous quote from our from Ravi Ashwin. You know when he says, you know, maybe six bad balls is how to yeah. construct a good over in T twenty, and that does recognise very very salient fact, and that completely contrasts with Test cricket, which as Jason Gillespie tells us, that is the war of attrition. It's yeah. about who who wins that who wins that spot just outside the, the off stump. You know, if you, you do that, you're you're winning the game. Um, T20 is completely different and you know what we think of as a bad ball can be a good ball and vice versa um, so this is yeah the way we, we think about it, it it needs to be completely different because it is and I suppose bowling at the death is, is a good example of this because it is so much about being unpredictable but it's also you know about being able to nail particular things at, at times but you know this was with the Yorker at the death everyone always says oh why isn't it bowled more and so on well the reason it's it's not is because it's margin for error is so small and also if batsmen learn to read it and set themselves for uh, for it they can make it into you know a low full toss and, and hit hit and club that away um, so the kind of the kind of game theory of of how to bat and bowl in um, in T20 cricket, you know, I think we'll see academic papers on that just as we see mm. them on how to take a penalty in a penalty shootout. There's yeah. something, there's probably some parallels with death bowling and penalty shootouts. For me, just one, one, one technical point that I think that comes through about not only spin bowling but fast bowling as well is it's, um, you talk about Jason Gillespie, you know, saying test cricket is a battle for that spot outside off stump. For me, from, um, from what I've gathered and I picked this up quite a lot with the work I've done with teams, um, bowling in T20 cricket is very much about cramping. It's, 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 the, the, I think line line is is very very important, more important than length. It's about cramping people for room, not giving them the ability to free their arms. It's that swing of the arms which comes from essentially batsmen can sometimes move around the crease and create a line if you like, or open up yeah. a, a side of the field. But the control of line is massive, and and, and um, Narayan is amazing at this. Um, and, and I think yeah. it applies to spinners and fast bowlers. Jofra Archer is another one who stands out, who basically gives the batsman no room. It's about room to free your arms. And for me, that's the that's the way I think often about T20 bowling is about cramping cramping people and, and keeping that sort of tight channel line, or not quite channel. Sometimes it's even tighter than that. Um, and and that, that that's I think something that really comes through as being essential to T20 bowling. And one, one, I have one sort of one more question on this subject, and then we can conclude. Um, sure. And this is that you know, our, when I interviewed Zubin Barucha all those six, seven years ago, there was this idea, a nascent idea at that time, about teams trying pursuing sort of favorable matchups. You know, so they would, if 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 they saw that the opposition had held back its spinner then they would hold back their player who they thought was, you know, their best bet to, you know, smash the spinner out of the ground, basically. How does that, how does the relationship between sort of the coaching staff and the, and the, and the team captain and or the team dugout, how does that develop, you know, in this type of situation where, you know, the, ta- the tactical situation is developing every over? I, th- I think it's there, there are different ways of going about it. Different different captains and different coaches will have different uh, relationships and different dynamics. 
Because mm. I think one person we spoke to for the book, Ricky Ponting, is a coach who's particularly hands-on. Um, his yeah. captain in the IPL is Shreyas Iyer, a young, probably quite impressionable young captain. And I think yeah. Pont- it's very much Ponting's team. Whereas you can contrast that with uh, Chennai, which is very much Dhoni's team. Uh, yeah. And you'll see, I think, there are different dynamics depending on the different individuals. But generally speaking, I think we'll see a, a, a greater emphasis on the backroom staff and the strategizing done by the team analyst and by the coach um, simply because I think Dhoni is a remarkable captain because he does a lot of those calculations in his head we talk about yeah. this in one of the chapters we look at the difference between Coley the captain and Dhoni the captain um, and, and Dhoni's ability to read the game is unparalleled he you know he I think he, he can quite clearly be probably the greatest limited overs captain of all time simply because of his his ability to understand what is required at, at any given moment um, yeah. He's done it for so long that it, it can't be luck or, or anything like that. You know, there, there is an innate skill there. But yeah. I think as the game becomes more led by data and, and it, you know, it, guys like Dhoni don't come around very often. And I think as a result, we'll see a greater emphasis placed on the, the, the coach and the strategists in the dugout. Um, and we see strategic timeouts in the IPL. Um, I think there'll be um, more of that kind of uh, involvement from the sidelines because I don't think captains captains can't simply do all these calculations in their head. Um, and, and, and I think that's why, um, yeah, it's gonna there's going to be a greater emphasis on on the backroom strategizing. And it's incredibly how until very very recently and in some cases still now. The recruitment of coaches have been completely in the dark ages. So mm. the best example of this is probably with, with Daniel Vittori, who if you look at him and you hear him speak, he's extremely impressive. You know, he, he played the game T20 very well at the end of his career. He's, he's got glasses. You know, he sort of he ticks every box. Mm. You, you just by the eye test, you, you think he, he must be a really, really good coach. But no one, we don't, we still don't have a simple way of getting like Krakinfo has has so many stats for players, but they don't have one, ones for coaches. So actually getting the win-loss record of coaches can be incredibly difficult. Uh, mm. We see, and actually turns out, Dan Vittori, he's basically lost more games than he's won wherever he's gone, which given that T20 leagues are set up to ensure competitive balance, you know, that's a big enough sample. That suggests he's not a brilliant coach. Um, mm. And so with Middlesex, they just, they, um, they appointed him before 2017 and they just said, the main reason, basically, they said, you know, he's got this IPL experience. It shows what a good coach he is. So he had this sort of halo effect from the IPL. But mm-hmm. then, turns out, he did terribly there. He won seven games out of 27. Um, but the point is, I think, we will see coaches become more accountable. And we'll see a bit like we have in football. You know, we'll get articles saying who will be the next IPL coach to be sacked. We'll get more mid-season sackings and stuff. And that, you know, maybe less desirable in some ways. But it will mean teams are more accountable. And again, there's more of emphasis on on winning and losing and that and that becomes really really even more more important i mean that will certainly happen because the in sort of t20 is sort of hampered by sort of the cricketing tradition and this subject isn't it where you know the coaches you know indian chapels famous words something which drives you to the to the to, to the ground <laughs> and back then back to the hotel you know because i mean i interviewed john buchanan about eight or nine years ago and he 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 told me about a couple of cases where you know the players were just not receptive to uh you know that kind of micromanagement on a sort of ball by ball over by over basis uh you know because one of the things he said is that with all this data it, it is it is possible to measure whether you know the player actually executed what was expected 
and separate that out from whether or not the outcome was what was desired and so on. So he he was telling me about this this issue of accountability, and he said players are given their cricketing histories; they are not yet receptive to that. But do you think that's just a generational thing, or or is there something deeper there? I think I think it's generational. I think I, I think it will take time, but I think um, it, the proof will be in that uh, when used properly, uh, data and micromanagement, if you could, if you want to call it that, of players will and should lead to improved results. Um, and I think that that will be the evidence that players need uh, to embrace it more wholeheartedly. And I think they'll recognise that if they, you know, if 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 a batsman understands his negative and positive matchups, he's more likely to succeed and he's more likely to earn more money. Um, and I think that 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 um, ultimately will be the the reason that that players become more accepting of it. Um, I think over time that that will happen. There's always going to be a difficulty in in essentially telling professional sportsmen how to do how to do their job. Uh, but yeah. that's the job, you know, that's the job of, of the team analyst and of the coach to sort of try and convey the message in a way that's um, understood and accepted. But I think that, as I said, I think the fact that they'll perform better if they if they listen generally, uh, I, I think will will mean that they will listen. And and as a control of players in, increases and you know players get long term contracts and stuff, so the incentives mm. for teams to actually invest in improving their players rather than just identifying players, well that will that will increase massively because if you, if you can give a player you know four or five year contract, then you can really think about how to make him a better player. At the moment, mm. I think most overwhelmingly analytics in cricket when it comes to players has been used much more to identify undervalued players, which has been very good at often as opposed to explain to a player how they can get, get better and work with them to get better. And that goes back to the control issues that we talked about with seasons being so short and players fitting in now. And I think as that as that begins to go, you'll see, as it begins to change, we'll be getting to see that again with, with, with the KKR a bit. Uh, but we will see, you know, players will have, they'll have basically our personalised coaches who, who work with, with their, their franchises and that will all be geared to working on on specific things to actually, you know, maybe the the inefficiency is going to be less in recruitment and the opportunity will be less in recruiting smarter than your rivals, but in developing your players better than your rivals. This has been very interesting. There's a lot more we could talk about over here. I, re- I heartily recommend the book to, 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 to listeners. Uh, it is the first real survey review of you know this new sport which has emerged or this new sport which is trying to emerge from under cricket's massive shadow having come to life uh, you know as as a as a sort of a how should i how should i describe it freddy as <laughs> well as, as, as an abridged an abridged version of of the longer format of the game yeah uh, and, and and yeah and then i guess, I guess it's, it, it it is emerging from 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 cricket's shadow uh, and, and I think we'll, we'll see more of that over the coming years Tim do you have any final words for our listeners most importantly to, to buy the book um, <laughs> which is yeah that, that is a really really important thing um, yeah and you can, you can buy it around the world um, if not on hardback then, uh, then always in, in Kindle form um, and yeah we, we put a lot into this we've talked we've had exclusive interviews with over 80 you know players and coaches and stuff um, and we, we really feel that yeah we've put so much into this and we've we've hopefully given you a little hint on this podcast um, so yeah we, we'd love if we, we could we could share we, we could share it with you
I recommend uh, the book and I second everything for Tim just said heartily. <laughs> Uh, on that note, Tim Bigmore, Freddie Wilde, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. It's been great to chat. Yeah. It's been a pleasure.